Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the People's School for Marxism-Leninist Studies. Today is October 24th, 2023. And tonight's class, we will be doing a class on the Hungarian counter-revolution of 1956. This class is going to be dealing with some of the befores, the lead-up tos, the durings, and the afters. But um, personally, I'm excited for this class because this is a subject I've been interested in for a long time. Comrade General Secretary Angelo D'Angelo, do you have any um, starting words before we begin? Yes, I do. You had a picture on the screen. Look at the flag that the counter-revolutionaries were holding. Go back to that picture. Notice the symbol. That's the flag of fascist Hungary, the one during World War II. The Horthy government, that's their flag. So it tells you where these people are coming from. They're not coming from democracy. They're coming from fascism. Thank you. Thank you, Comrade D'Angelo. And with that, we will get started today. Yeah, and I'd like to say a few words on this class. Uh, first of all, um, the song you heard in the beginning, it was called The Song of Liberation. You saw the date April 4th, 1945 reference. That was the day that um, that the last of the Nazi army was kicked out of Hungary. So that's what that song was about. Um, we we decided to do this class for multiple reasons. Um, so yesterday was the 67th anniversary of the beginning of this uh, counter-revolution. Um, initially, um, I wanted this to be on November 4th, but uh, I, I forget what reason, but... Uh, we couldn't do it on the 4th of November. That was the last day of the counter-revolution when the Soviet the Soviet Union sent in the tanks to uh, crush the fascists. So we wanted to preface this by saying, you know, this is a topic that has to be looked at with a dialectical lens, as with everything. In uh, the 20th Congress of the CPSU, there was a secret speech given by Khrushchev, which uh, disunity among the um, international communist movement. This played a big role in the in causing the counter-revolution. But we have to commend Comrade Khrushchev for his role in promptly putting down this fascist revolution. So... Had they not sent in the tanks, it would have reverted back to the Horthyite regime from before 1945. And with that, I think we can uh, get started. Thank you, comrade. So what we'll be learning today is we'll have some background on Hungarian history. We'll have the conditions that led to the counter-revolution, the 1956 counter-revolution itself, and drawing parallels to the Euromaidan and the present day. Next slide. History of the Hungarian Soviet Republic. So comrades, what a lot of people don't know is that in 1917, 1918, 1919, th that three-year period toward the end of World War I and after, there was a series of revolutions that sprung up in Europe. This included, of course, the Great October Socialist Revolution, um, the revolution in Germany, Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht, the revolution in Finland, and there was also a revolution in Hungary. Hungary became a socialist republic for 133 days under Bela Kun, who was the leader of the Hungarian communists. And the Hungarian Red Army actually uh, managed to take a lot of land. They spread the revolution to Slovakia. They briefly established a Slovak Soviet Republic. Um, 
but there were problems of course you had the entente who intervened against this revolution um and you also had a lot of support for the revolution within the you know within the big cities amongst industrial workers in hungary but you had little revolutionary presence within the countryside um keep in mind comrades this was at a time that social democracy um, was still the dominant uh, socialist ideology. This was before Lenin made his split with social democracy, but this was fundamentally before that split really metastasized itself in all of the communist parties and you know what became communist parties throughout Europe. Um, and again, the reason why this was defeated was because of international intervention by the Entente. So the French, Romanian, Yugoslavia, and Slovak armies all intervened to crush the Soviet Republic. And this led to the rise of uh, Nicholas Horthy and the White Terror. Next slide. Nicholas Horthy, the Franco of Hungary. For people who don't know, Franco was the dictator in Spain who led a fascist coup and established fascism in Spain. Nicholas Horthy was a Hungarian admiral who led the counter-revolutionary forces in Hungary. He came to power right after the defeat of the Soviet Republic, and he was also propped up by the Entente, particularly British. There were several British loans that were given out to Horthy's government throughout this period. Horthy, immediately upon seizing power, unleashed a white terror. Um, tens of thousands were imprisoned, murdered. All the communist and workers' parties were banned. Trade unions, mass organizations. And Hungary, actually, much like Finland in this period, established a fake parliament. But only rightist parties were allowed, just like what happened in Finland. There was rampant anti-Semitism that was state enforced. There were pogroms regularly, and there were also restrictions on Jewish education within universities, or, you know, Jews were prevented from not only being in universities, but also were prevented from being in government positions. And this Hungarian nationalism actually, um, you know, kind of paved the way for eventually the Holocaust in Hungary that would happen during World War II, this isolation. Next slide. Hungary during the interwar was very backwards. There was basically semi-feudal conditions throughout the country. There was intense revanchism, just like in Germany. There was a treaty that the Entente enforced on Hungary called the Treaty of Ternan, which resulted in Hungary losing a ton of territory. The peasantry and the vast majority of the Hungarian population were peasants. They owned less than 8.25% of all land in the country. Can you imagine that? The rest of the land was owned by 400 magnate families and the Catholic Church. Um, the government and the parliament were entirely made up of basically real estate owners um, from the Esterhazy Karyoli class. These were the aristocrats during the days of Austria-Hungary. They maintained their power even after the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in this new Orthiite regime. Less than 30% of Hungarians were allowed to vote. Again, it was a very much a similar to Finland, where the industrial working class was not allowed to vote in the country. What little capitalism, at least industrial capitalism, occurred was very much foreign-owned. Hungary was so backward and sent even, even for Eastern Europe that much of the ruling class in Hungary were actually opposed to industrial capitalism. And of course, there were very close diplomatic ties to both fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. Next slide. During World War II, Hungary, already a fascist country, joined the Anti-Comintern Pact, that's the Axis, comrades. They don't tell you that in schools, but the Axis is the anti-Comintern Pact in 1940, and they helped invade the USSR in 1941 with Operation Barbarossa. Hungarian armies within the Soviet Union committed a lot of horrific massacres and crimes alongside their German allies, but the Hungarians didn't fare too well, nor did the Germans during Barbarossa, as we all know. 
in fact, the Hungarian second army was actually one of the main armies wiped out at the battle of Stalingrad. They were tasked to hold the flanks of the German army. Um, within Hungary, this created a crisis. There were elements of the Hungarian petty bourgeoisie that wanted to work with the allies and wanted to work with the communists to get rid of Hungary and to switch sides. Horthy basically um, played both sides. He played the Germans and he also played uh, these bourgeois elements, but he was constantly sabotaging any peace efforts and any efforts for Hungary to switch sides. But even these efforts by Horthy to preserve himself and to pray that the U.S. Army would reach Hungary before the Soviets, this backfired and the Nazis got rid of Horthy and they installed this party called the Arrow Cross Party. The Arrow Cross Party was even more fanatical. Um, they committed the majority of the crimes uh, against the Jewish population during this period. During this period, 564,000 Jews were deported to the death camps in 1944. And, you know, this is like more than half a million Jews were killed in Hungary during World War II and the Holocaust. But even more fanatical fascist coup that took place didn't stop the tide of history. The Red Army liberated Hungary in 1945 and established a provisional government, which included the Smallholders Party, the Communist Party, the Social Democrats, and the Peasant Party. So unlike U.S. propaganda, remember, comrades, the Soviets created people's democracies within Eastern Europe. They didn't immediately establish socialist republics. All right. Thank you, comrades. And with that, we will break for discussions. So first, we have comrade from Canada. You have the floor. Yeah, just a quick, like, closer look. Why did the Germans replace Houthi exactly? He did something against the Nazis, or they just weren't happy with him? Can we clarify? Thank you. After Stalingrad, Horthy made several overtures to the Western Allies um, because he realized the game was up. Um, and he represented a faction of the Hungarian ruling class that wanted to preserve their power. And they realized that if they went down completely with the Germans, then this would probably lead to a revolution in Hungary. So it was just pure opportunism. Um, and Horthy, during the, he, he, even during this war, he delayed all peace attempts um, until basically it was too late. Um, he attempted to switch sides in Hungary like last minute, um, but he excluded the communists and the Hungarian National Front, which was the main resistance organization from these plans. So as a result of these kind of attempts to surrender to the Western allies while not making a peace with the Soviets, this led to the Nazis cooing Horthy. But don't don't get it mistaken. Horthy was very much a fascist, and he is directly responsible for the Aerocross coup by undermining the Hungarian patriotic forces against fascism. Thank you, comrade. Um, comrade Angelo, you have the floor. Go ahead. Okay, I want to remind people that in Poland, Hungary, um, those two countries were led by fascists before the Germans came in. In Poland, it was Pilsudski. And Finland, Finland is the third one. Finland, it was Monaheim. They were all German uh, military people, ethnically. So those three countries were fascist. The second thing is they call us tankies. The other people on the left call us tankies because we defend. We actually stand up and we defend our societies. The anarchists are full of pacifism. And um, that's why they allowed the fascists to take over. But uh, that's why they call us tankies, because we stand up. And Lenin said, if a revolution cannot defend itself, then it's not worth being a revolution. Thank you. 
Thank you. Comrade California, you have the floor. Okay. I uh, just wanted to ask a question about Horthy. Uh, like, what was his background um, before all of this was going on? Was he just like a military leadership kind of dude, or what was his role? I mean, we know that they were Austria-Hungary at one point, but I'm just curious. It wasn't mentioned in the presentation. Yeah, funny enough, he was an admiral. Um, but Hungary post-World War I, uh, after Austria-Hungary collapsed, it didn't even have a coastline. So he was an admiral in charge of a country without a coastline, and he positioned himself as regent since Hungary was still called the Kingdom of Hungary, but it didn't have a monarch. So he was basically the regent for life. Yeah, and he and he was and he came out of specifically Hungarian aristocracy and ruling class families from that period. Thank you, comrade. Comrade, you have the floor. Yeah, mention the first Soviet Hungarian Republic of 1919 that was uh, led by Bela Kun, and uh, there is something sad about this is 20 years later, he was repressed during the time of the oppressions of 37, 38, and he was executed. And, you know, Bela Kun was, was honest. He, he was, but he was accused of being a Trotskyist, you know, so many did that were not Trotskyist, you know, and that is a sad story that Molotov talks about, you know, and stuff. So I just want to know about this Bela Kun guy, you know, it ended badly, you know, sad story. Yeah. Yeah. That's and in it. his case, and specifically, I believe he was, people have to understand during those years, um, you had very nasty folks within the NKVD. The NKVD was infiltrated by various intelligence organizations and fascists. You had uh, Yagoda, and you also had Yezhov. People know the term Yezhovshina. Yezhov was a, he was bad news. And uh, a lot of people who didn't deserve to be repressed were repressed by, you know, this corrupt faction within the NKVD that were undermining the Soviet Union. Thank you, comrade. Um, comrade, you have the floor. Go ahead. Yeah. So if if Hungary was this like super semi-feudal country, basically just feudal country, how come the communists didn't have that much uh, influence in the countryside? You would think the peasants want to, you know, rise up against the landlords and fight against them. But... Yeah, it, it's a complicated case because, I mean, there was some, I, I say semi-feudal because there was some like industry, but it was foreign owned. Um, the reason why the peasants weren't as politically conscious in Hungary's case is actually, again, it's due to, remember, comrades, um, it's the workers and peasants. That's from Leninism. When you were dealing with the Hungarian Revolution of 1919, that hadn't translated into Hungarian politics yet. So you still had the old social democrats and radical social democrats who supported the Bolshevik revolution, they weren't necessarily organizing amongst the peasantry and unifying the workers and the peasants. Comrade Angelo, did you want to say something? Yes. Don't forget, the Roman Catholic Church was very influential in Hungarian society. Remember, the international church in Rome was pro-fascist. Pope Pius Third, I think, or the 22nd, one of them, the 22nd, uh, he was called the the fascist pope that's what he was nicknamed um when the Anschluss happened in austria uh the bells were told to be rung by the roman catholic church to support the Anschluss with fascism so here you have cardinal mazensky uh that name you should remember mazensky who was pro-fascist 
He had been in prison for a brief time. And uh, the first thing the revolution did was let him out of prison. The counter-revolution was to let him out of prison. He led the forces against the, the party, against the Communist Party. So don't forget the power of organized religion. And in Hungary, it was the Roman Catholics. Their enemy was the Jews. Remember, the church at that time was preaching a gospel that said this. The Jews killed Christ. They forced the Romans to kill Christ. But it was the Jewish leadership in Palestine at the time. 90 seconds. uh, Remember that. You should not forget that. Those of us who come from Italian background, I know this because my grandmother was trying to instill that in me as a child. She was very anti-Semitic. And I asked her why. It's because they killed Christ. That was the line from the, the church. So it's understandable that large numbers of Jews were in the Communist Party. And therefore, the first victims of the counter-revolution were the Jews in the party. Thank Two you. minutes. Thank you, Comrade Angelo. Comrade, do you have the floor? Yeah, to add on to that, um, the ruling class in Hungary deliberately prevented Hungary from becoming more industrialized, specifically to prevent a rising working class from forming and possibly under, possibly um, uh, forming a revolution. And they were very deeply held anti-Slavic, anti-Semitic beliefs in the population. Um, and these these uh, institutions uh, oppressed the people for for many many centuries. In fact, I think in in the uh, in Herbert Aptheker's book, it was said that uh, during World War II, while most other European countries had underground communist movements or socialist movements, uh, Hungary was one of the only countries that didn't have any sort of opposition and any sort of division that occurred politically was really just divisions among different types of fascists. Thank you, Comrade Trudy. Comrade, uh, you have the floor. Uh, Dr. Angelo, uh, what did you say again about Medzensky again? He was leader of the counter-revolution? He was a leader... He was the head of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. He was a cardinal. And Rome put him as the head of the Roman Catholic Church in Hungary. And the whole Roman Catholic at that period was very pro-fascist. That's all. Yeah. Didn't he oppose, uh, the, wasn't he arrested by the Arrow Cross Party? Yeah, he, okay, so he was arrested by the Arrow Cross Party, I, but you, ha- you have to keep in mind, you know, there was, again, there was fighting between um there was fighting there. It was basically an intra-fascist fight between the Aerocross, who were just complete German sellouts and like the Hungarian bourgeoisie, which who were also German sellouts, but could see the writing on the wall and wish the American tanks would reach Budapest before the Russian tanks did. But of course, the Soviets, you know, managed to liberate Hungary way before. So. Thank you. Comrade. It sounded like you said the, the Hungarian uh, bourgeoisie were anti industrialist i can't remember the exact term you used was anti-industrialist does that mean they were like anti-industrialization as a whole or well okay so first there really wasn't much of a bourgeoisie in hungary uh again so for a thousand years hungary was a feudal state so they still had um you know they had the catholic church up at the top along with princes and lords so yeah they wanted to maintain their uh um their agrarian society 
what industry they did uh, or have in the country was mostly industrial or was mostly foreign owned uh germany italy even the us um and uh and uh, britain owned a lot of uh industry in hungary so yeah there wasn't really much of a bourgeoisie in hungary or national bourgeoisie i should say i hope that answered your question right thank you comrade yeah, good evening, comrade. So uh, I wanted to touch on something that is a little bit of a sad story. And it is um, the leader of the Soviet Hungarian Republic. His name was Bela Kun. And he was a real good close friend of Lenin. And um, he left Hungary after the, uh, the defeat of the revolution in 1919, you know, and got involved in the Comintern and everything. But 20 years later, in 1938, he was repressed, not just repressed, but he was executed. And uh, it's a sad story. We cannot really say that Stalin did it, but he could have prevented it, that's for sure. There was a lot of uh, you know, bad people in the NKVD at the time, okay? But definitely Bela Kun was no, was no freaking counter-revolutionary, you know? He was, he was a hero 20 years earlier, so that's what happened. Yeah, and uh, to add on to that, in the NKVD, there were German uh, or Nazi collaborators such as Yezhov and Yagoda that were at the leadership of the NKVD. So, um, yeah, there was a lot of uh, anti-communist um, attacks. You know, we can move on. All right. Thank you for that, comrades. Were, was the fascist government in Hungary almost a sort of class collaborationism between the more reactionary elements of the bourgeoisie and the feudal lords? Uh, yeah, so, you know, as, uh, you know, our definition of, um, of fascism is uh, uh, most openly terroristic uh, dictatorship of the monopoly capital. Again, I said they didn't have much monopoly capital in uh, Hungary. They had foreign. So these uh, fascists were actually representing the imperialist powers outside of Hungary. And they collaborated with, uh, uh, you'll, you'll hear the name a lot in this class, Cardinal Minzenti. He was a leader of reaction. He was uh, the leader of the Catholic Church in Hungary. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, I want to follow up on the uh, question about uh, the state of the development of industry in uh, Hungary. And uh, I just want to basically say that if you look at the history of Hungary up to the point of uh, World War II emerging, Hungary emerged out of the ruins of World War I as basically a finally freed independent country from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which considered itself a quote-unquote a duopoly uh, uh, monarchy, but in truth, the Austrians ruled over the Hungarians with an iron fist to basically keep that uh, kingdom together as they uh, slowly flailed it into uh, irrelevance. The real history behind the Hungarian Revolution and the uh, counter-revolution are really tragic, mostly because you have an emergence of nations that started coming along with the uh, Soviet Union. The uh, drumbeat of freedom for nations to gain their own national uh, independence in a lot of the eastern regions, and it being subverted by a uh, national reaction. 
and counter revolution. I think a good documentary people should uh, take a look at. It's a YouTube documentary too from uh, the BBC. It's called The Fall of the Eagles, and it's a mini series of I think twelve episodes, give or take. Good series, but you get to basically see not just the Austro-Hungarian Empire fall, but you know the Prussian-German Empire, the uh, Russian Tsar's Empire, and probably the greatest treat yet is that you get to see the communists actually have somewhat of an okay representation in it, with uh, Lenin being played by uh, Jean, uh, what's his name, uh, Jean-Luc Picard from Star Trek, uh, Sir Patrick Stewart. So that could be something people could uh, look up to learn about the history of a, uh, you know, that period. That's all. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that. I'll uh, look into that after this. Yeah, and I'll just add real quick, that series, um, we might use it at the people's school at some point. It's not too bad. And I remember in that series, them showing how in Austria-Hungary, a lot of the Hungarians were looked on upon um, as kind of less than the Austrian people. Um, but thank you for that, comrade. Yeah, my understanding is the Hungarian... I guess bourgeois was so weak, the communists were so weak that really the the Nazis, the German Nazis, could just really dictate what the Hungarian uh, government could do. And while they did give the um, fascists of Hungary like some sense of power, like towards the end of the war, they just said, "Nope, we're just taking over," um, and the Nazis just took over the entire state towards I think like the last year of the of the war. Maybe someone can correct me on that but that's what i've heard yeah and you're you're correct about that i mean parthy was with the nazis uh we we have to be clear that his uh his regime was friendly he started after he noticed that uh the soviet union was going to fall or not the soviet union sorry after he noticed that nazi germany was going to fall in the hands of soviet union he wanted to switch his alliances to the the British and Americans, because he knew they would give him a lighter punishment. So um, so he switched to that side. And so then there was a coup with the Arrow Cross, which was another even more extreme Nazi. Um, it was run by a man named uh, Shalazi. All right. Thank you, comrades. I just wanted to add kind of a, I guess, not so fun of a fact, um, but a little interesting one to note. Uh, Hungary, it's no joke that they were a fascist power. Hungary is actually one of the few countries that we've actually declared war on before. It was the second to last. It was uh, Hungary and then Romania. And we also declared war on Austria-Hungary back during World War One. But that's just um, something to note. They're one of, I think, 10 or 11 countries that we've actually ever declared war on. Um, I just want to add a little comment. Um, in um. D.C., not too far from Union Station, there is a uh, counter-revolutionary monument like blaming Soviets for uh, the famine that took place um, that killed many uh, uh, Hungarians and stuff. Like, that's how serious a uh, reaction here is in the city, yeah. the capital. And in, in the next section, you'll see the Americans imported a lot of ex-Nazis after World War II from the Eastern European countries, like uh, Hungary and uh, Poland, Ukraine, Latvia, you know, et cetera. So you'll see that. And that's the same people that are the anti-communists uh, of today. Thank you, comrades. So we'll go ahead and go to the next section. 
If at some point you have another question, uh, do keep your hand up during it. We'll get to you during the next discussion round. Conditions that led to the 1956 counter-revolution. Hungarian nationalism. Hungarian nationalism was deeply ingrained in the monarchy and church. From the 1830s, language laws required voters, lawyers, and priests to be fluent in Hungarian. These laws discriminated against Slavic and Romanian minorities. Jewish people were barred from holding any sort of political position. By the 1900s, anti-Semitism was a deep, pervasive idea held among all classes and segments of Hungarian society. During the rise of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Hungarians sought Magyar national power over the ethnic minorities instead of full political independence. The Croats, Serbs, Slovaks, and Romanians were minorities, but in combination, they nearly equaled the number of ethnic Magyars. The Roman Catholic Church was an integral part of the ruling class. In property, politics, and ideology, it was identical with and a bulwark of the clerical, feudalist, fascist regimes, which ruled over Hungary for a thousand years. Um, and there's a uh, some sections from Herbert Aptiger's book, The Truth About Hungary. Hungary's nationalism was tied quite consciously to political reaction. Her Catholicism served to sanctify both the nationalism and the reaction. After World War I, Hungary, in common with, though preceding her neighbors, with the exception of Czechoslovakia, adopted a fascist dictatorial political form and maintained this unchanged, except for increasing Nazi influence, for 25 years. The specific features of Hungarian development are of particular relevance, of course, to any effort to understand the recent upheaval. One finds first in Hungary a non-Slavic people surrounded by Slavic neighbors. This served to expedite an alignment of Hungary with Western dominant powers, particularly Austria and Germany. It served also to keep Hungary out of the French-created Little Entente, and thus again to direct Hungary into the Germanic sphere. At the same time, Hungary's clerical-feudalist fascist character kept her a prime member of imperialism's cordon sanitaire surrounding the Soviet Union. In Hungary's case, however, this membership had a special quality in that Magyar hostility to the Slav, and especially to Russia, the major Slavic power, added a nationalistic and deep-seated fervor. Also in the case of Hungary, her nationalism contained intense chauvinistic and aggressive features, for Magyar expansionism fell easily into line with German imperialism. Both sought to state themselves upon their Slavic neighbors, and Hungary, as a natural helpmate of German, our best ally was Hitler's characterization of Hungary, served as a particular source of exasperation and war danger in the always nervous Balkans. Competent observers and historians are unanimous in noting the extreme chauvinism that characterized Hungarian politics and thought, especially from 1918 to 1945. Typical is this paragraph from John Gunther's well-known Inside Europe. In Hungary is the strongest, most pervasive nationalism in Europe, in the chauvinism sweepstakes, the Hungarians beat even the Poles. Uh, next slide, please. Problems with socialist reforms. Legitimate grievances. The transition to socialism in Hungary was faced with much opposition from the ruling class. Hungary was deeply entrenched in feudalism and not as industrialized as other European countries. Socialist reforms such as land redistribution, construction of public facilities, and industrialization greatly improved the lives of many Hungarians. However, the citizens still had some legitimate grievances, as outlined in Herbert Aptiker's work, The Truth About Hungary. Once again, the exceptional position of Hungary is clear immediately. 
a dramatic way to indicate Hungary's extraordinary concentration on developing heavy industry as projected in her 1950 plan and in part carried out is to note that the investment plan for her single greatest steel producing plant was greater than the total investment planned for all light industry in the period 1950 to 1955. Another area in which, again, Hungary showed herself to be exceptional was in that of military expenditure, a particularly devastating kind of waste to a socialist economy. Thus, in 1947 to 48, the percentage of total state expenditures for arms in Hungary was four, the lowest in Central and Eastern Europe. But with the policy of rearming, Hungary was devoting 36% of all state expenditures in 1952 to defense preparations. This ninefold increase was greater than any other socialist country, very possibly greater than any country in the world, and it brought the percentage of Hungary's expenditure on arms to the top of all socialist countries in 1952. There was a smaller but a considerable rise also in the light and food industries. This was notably true in cotton goods, wool and cloth, shoes, paper and sugar output, the rise equaling about 50 to 80% from 1950 to 1955, with their major gains here coming after 1953. Here, however, consumer demand began to grow increasingly selective and critical, and the problem of rejects and poor quality grew in severity as the five-year plan drew to an end. Uh, next slide, please. The problem of agriculture was met less successfully. The three million beggars of the Horthy regime were gone, and most certainly the peasantry never forgot that it was the new Hungary which had wiped out the unspeakable physical, cultural, and psychological impoverishment of those awful days. Yet here, with nature in control and man still quite puny and with the weight of the past hanging like veritable alps upon the backs of the peasantry, actual advances in total production were much slower than in industry. Thus, while in 1955, industrial output was three times greater than pre-war, agricultural output was only negligibly higher, ranging from 5 to 10%. Indeed, certain crops, corn, for example, was below pre-war levels, and others, potatoes, for example, was barely held its own. The picture as concerns stock breeding was no better. The cattle, hog, sheep stock remained essentially at pre-war level. Under socialism, even with the especially disadvantageous circumstances faced by post-war Hungary, people expect and should expect that living will be better and easier and more joyous. This very expectation on the part of millions who, in the Horthy era, expected nothing but misery and hunger and insult, produced impatience and worse than impatience in the face of scanty or delayed or partial realization. The expectation is part of the dynamics in a socialist society, and discontent can oil the dynamo if the realization is not too far from the hope and if the improvement is steady. As a matter of fact, the conduct of the USSR in connection with reparations from Hungary was rather generous. First of all, she extended the time of payments from six to eight years. Then on January 20th, 1948, she announced a reduction of 17 million on Hungary's reparations. And on June 8th, 1948, she waived 50% of the remaining reparation payments. Nevertheless, for eight years, Hungarians witnessed trainloads of commodities sorely needed at home, chugging their way eastward to complete reparation payments. This was made to order for hostile rumors and exaggerated gossip. The existence of CIA, etc., is to be recalled at this point. As to how fierce this was Soviet Russia's alleged exploitation of Hungarian resources, the severe Soviet secrecy in connection with anything involving her own internal development especially as this touch on military matters, did not help squash such rumors and tales. Importation of fascists to the U.S. 
uh, Committee for a Free Europe, which was passed in 1949, and the Lodge Act of 1950. The Committee for a Free Europe was an anti-communist CIA front organization. It was funded by corporations such as Standard Oil, U.S. Steel, and Ford Motor Company. Related to it was Radio Free Europe and the Free Europe Press. This front utilized political exiles to establish psychological warfare techniques to be used against the Soviet Union and its satellites. Defection was encouraged and defectors rewarded to engage in propaganda and infiltration, as well as to return to their native lands as sleeper leaders for future crises. Many of the members were reactionaries and conducted acts of terrorism and violence. The influence of these groups was directly linked to the 1956 uprising. Ferenc Nagy, former prime minister of Hungary, was one such asylum seeker who was intended to be a sleeper leader for Hungary had the attempted revolution succeeded. The Lodge Act provided for the recruitment of an anti-communist foreign legion selected from defectors of Soviet countries. These men received specialized training and after five years in the U.S. Army, rewarded with citizenship. The effects of Khrushchev's secret speech. As we were reading Herbert Aptheker's work, there was a notable anti-Stalinism in, in some of the chapters. Khrushchev's infamous secret speech, which was delivered at the 20th Congress of the CPSU, denounces Stalin as a cult of personality and paints him as an oppressive tyrant who murdered thousands of innocent people through purges. Khrushchev likely did this to discredit other party members loyal to Stalin, like Molotov, Malenkov, and Kaganovich. The speech was a huge blow to the communist movement worldwide, leading many to abandon the cause or engage in anti-Stalin revisionism. It should be noted that even many Western historians were skeptical about Khrushchev's efforts to lay all the blame on Stalin. The speech also fails to explain how the Soviet Union remained progressive and democratic all throughout Stalin's time as premier if he was supposedly a tyrant. Unfortunately, Aptheker adopted this anti-Stalinist view, writing that it is clear and admitted now by all the USSR itself under the leadership of Joseph Stalin, practiced bullying tactics, which were often contemptuous of the national feelings of the fraternal but weaker states seeking to build socialism. This bias should be kept in mind when interpreting his work. Thank you, Comrade. And we will now break for our discussion again. So Herbert Aptheker, I know, correct me if I'm wrong, he was one of the people in at, towards the end of the uh, Communist Party in 1991 that went with the pro-Khrushchevite faction, correct me if I'm wrong. If so, I guess, um, is it because, what was he like before, I guess, the secret speech? I'm curious to know, was he more pro-Stalin than he became anti-Stalin after, or... Well, you have a couple things. I mean, a, a lot, the majority, you have to keep in mind the party um, in response to the secret speech split into three groups. There was the William Z. Foster faction. There was the Gus Hall, uh, Eugene Dennis faction, which was the center. And then you had the John Gates faction. The John Gates faction wanted to liquidate the party and merge with the Socialist Party. The Gus Hall faction was basically, they wanted to go along with Khrushchev and the secret speech. But the, of course, there were differences between Gus Hall and Eugene Dennis. Um, Gus Hall had his own unique view on Stalin that isn't that can't be simplified to the Khrushchevite view. Um, and then you had the William Z. Foster who disagreed with Khrushchev. You had that faction. Herbert Aptheker sided with the Gus Hall faction. But your reference to 1991, it was worse than just being a Khrushchevite comrade. What happened in 91 is that Aptheker went along with Angela Davis and the committees of correspondence, which tried to liquidate the entire Communist Party. 
And what's even worse is that in a sense, they succeeded because the people who went over to committees of correspondence, a lot of them came back into the leadership of the party. In fact, current co-chair of the CPSU, uh, Rosanna Cambron, she went over of committees of correspondence in 91. So the co-chair of the current so-called Communist Party went over with that pro-prayerstroika fraction that basically killed the party. Thank you, comrade. This is a really good class. I'm I'm really giddy that we had it. You know, I'm Polish, so I, I love learning about all the Slavic countries and their revolutions. But uh, this class is also a really good example for new people of how dialectics plays out in motion, how Khrushchev was, you know, he was right for putting down the counter-revolution, but he was very wrong in, against Stalin. And Angelo says this all the time. People are at different points at different points in their life. Like Angela Davis used to be a really good communist, but now she's a liberal. Um, you know, I, I just think it's a really good class that shows that in motion with history. Thank you, comrade. Hey, what's up, y'all? I noticed that a big shift in, you know, the politics of of that country, it was like with Hungary, it was like, they had um academic class that had a historical revivalist like theory of their of like the past like a counter-revolutionary history that they wanted to relive and that still happens today like in hong kong like the united states had occupied hong kong at a time and the people who were nev funded you know to protest and try to topple the revolutionary government in hong kong those people you know, wanted to revive an old counter-revolutionary history. So it's important for us to, you know, as communists, internationally educate on the history, the revolutionary history and how it raised the material conditions of a country and how the counter-revolutionary history lowered the material conditions. Thank you, Comrade. Comrade Angelo, you have the floor. Okay, when one comes into the Communist Party, at what point in their life, they usually is where they stay. Henry Winston came in during the Stalin period. You should know this, as a leader of the YCL. So he went to many international gatherings in East Berlin. And there were pictures of him there at the World Peace Camps in East Berlin. Aptica came in in the Khrushchev period, not in the Stalin period. If you look at when he came into the party, it was the Khrushchev period. So that stayed with him, that period. So it's not strange that he ended up his life going back to the father of Khrushchev, which was Gorbachev, interestingly enough. So he did a complete circle. Lenin has a quote for um, one of his communists at the time. Um, he says, I remember well when you were a Marxist. I forgot who he was talking about, but people know who well, should know who I'm talking about. And so people change. So Aptica came in during the Khrushchev period. It was easy for him to um, to criticize what he called the excesses of Khrushchev. In a way, Aptica's thesis from his book is that they went too fast in Hungary. The Stalin people went too quick. They went to socialize the economy too quickly. And that caused a back um, a reverse from the people. That's what uh, Aptica's view is. Gus Hall, one sentence. Gus Hall's view was that Stalin did good and Stalin did bad. 
it's more of an equal view. When I was in the party, that was the Gus Hall view, that they were good and bad. But before Gus Hall, the people that came in during the Khrushchev period have a different view. Mm-hmm. So Aptika wind up going back to his roots when he first came in, which was Khrushchev. Thank you. Thank you, Comrade Angelo. Yeah, more focused question. In terms of subversive actions, how, how do these corporations get money out of, I guess, the country to fund these fascists? And and what do they get out of it? Like, does a CIA agent come and say, hey, you have billions of dollars in profit, fund this Nazi group? Does anybody know how that works? Because I'm always hearing about corporations funding these groups. Does anybody know how that works? Thank you. Yeah, they have international affiliates. Um, corporations are globalized. Um, the entire economy is globalized. So they have a subdivision within the various country. It's quite simple. You have a subdivision from the various country. You don't even need the CIA to do it. Keep in mind, comrades, that Standard Oil in Texaco, they funded Franco in 36 instinctively. They didn't even ask for payment. They gave Franco the free oil for his tanks and the free and like the oil for, you know, the aircraft that bombed Guernica came from the U.S. It came from Texaco, came from uh, Prescott Bush, the father of H.W. Bush and the grandfather of George W. Bush. You know, these corporations, they have international contacts. Uh, Sure, they'll work with intelligence when need be. But there's a very good quote that I heard somewhere. I don't know who said it, but the ruling class is more in a lot of cases, more class conscious than unfortunately, the proletariat. The ruling class is very aware of their position. They're aware of their enemies and their interests. So that's how I guess they do what they want to do. They got plenty of money for it. Yeah, I just wanted to correct. The Hungarians were not Slavic people. There, I mean, there were Slavic people in Hungary, but the majority of the population, they were Magyar. And that's important because the nationalist uh, views of the Magyar people was actually very anti-Slavic. They were more aligned with uh, Germanic nationalism. And this is part of the reason why what happened in 1956 happened, because there was already an anti-Slavic view in the country. Now you have this uh, power, the Soviet Union, which is majority Slavic, kind of uh, having a lot of say in in their country. So... It only drove nationalist tendencies. Thank you, Comrade. Thanks. I'm glad I learned something. I, I've always, I always thought they were Slavic. Um, I didn't know that. Thanks. Uh, good, good evening. <laughs> How are you, comrades? I think at the time of the Soviet Union, I think the only person, politician and theoretician, who understood the role of uh, reaction in the Soviet Union, even during uh, comprehensive socialist reconstruction of the country, was uh, Stalin, actually. So I think people like uh, Khrushchev didn't like him and hated him because they were petty bourgeois intellectuals. They were not really supporters and defenders of proletarian revolution in their own country and overseas. So I think Stalin also greatly contributed to the reconstruction of Eastern Europe. I think Dr. Angelo could correct me, but the CMEA, Council for Mutual Economic Assistance, most of the money came from the Soviet Union, and I think they have allocated over $60 billion to reconstruct those countries. Some of them were totally the high, high level of uh, illiteracy, you know, backward uh, modes of production, 
And I think the Soviet Union really created critical roles in making those countries nation states, you know, full-fledged nation states, socialist states within, within their own uh, domains, and also net exporters of uh, agricultural and industrial goods to developing countries. But now look at those countries. They, they are totally in bad shape, especially the youth, the young generation. They don't have any future. They cannot uh, start up families. And most of them are into gambling, drugs, and prostitution. And that is what they have gained after uh, becoming hostile to the Soviet Union. So is this democracy? Is this progress? So I think those, those countries are the next heartbeats. I think that is, that is going to be a lot of radical uh, upheaval in those regions because the population which experienced socialism uh, and the benefits of socialism, they are still alive, uh, although they are getting old. So I think those countries have tremendous potential for socialist revolution to, again. And I think Stalin also predicted that those countries would betray socialism and that they will have a second round of a socialist revolution, potentially speaking. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, I just wanted to say um, everything uh, comrade Ephraim was saying was mostly correct. Um, it must be noted that Khrushchev was, um, he came from a peasant background. He wasn't proletarian background, but I wouldn't say that he was against proletarian revolution. His secret speech did hurt the movement, but he did recognize that fact, and he put down these uh, these counter-revolutions as soon as he noticed that they were getting out of control. For, you know, this um, counter-revolution, it lasted for about two weeks, and in it, he tried to hold back sending troops because there was already a lot of tension against the USSR. So he wanted to keep a hands-off approach just supporting the Hungarian government uh, in their efforts. But when he found that they started uh, going down a counter-revolutionary path themselves, he sent in the tanks and uh, promptly ended counter-revolution. So it does need to be understood that Khrushchev, he did wrong with his speech, but he did save the revolution also. Thank you, comrade. What I remember Apticker criticizing, I guess like his anti-Stalin stance on the Hungarian, I guess, socialist government is, oh, it was too Stalinistic. It was too industrialist. And they focused too much on industrializing. Um, and this created problems. I just want to, th- does that even make sense? Like I, I remember reading that, but not finding like the counter argument for it, or if there is some validity to that. Okay, so um, Angelo said it on um, on Tuesday. So Her- Herbert Epthiker, he came in during the Khrushchev period. He, you know, so he had a bias already from the start, but um one thing, though, is that he believed that it was um, industrialization was going too fast. Now, there is some validity in that because, as we saw before, there were other sectors of industry being um, 
neglected, I should say. They were still being built, but at a slower rate. So um, agriculture, housing, you know, uh, basic, you know, basic things that aren't heavy industry. Um, I, I was reading that at 1948, there was still a um, um, an average household occupancy in a bedroom of 1.74. So the, the housing was pretty cramped. So there were definitely some legitimate grievances, but yeah, it, it was a little bit exaggerated. Great, thank you, comrade. Dr. D. Angelo was mistaken. I, I appreciate. I looked it up, and that uh, Abdecker joined the party in 1939. And like in a, pre a book previous year, uh, I read once uh, History and Reality that in 1955 he had a number of like praises for Stalin. So I guess you can excuse him by saying like that the revelation, uh, the Khrushchev speech just come out and say like most people assumed that he wouldn't have a reason, Khrushchev wouldn't have any reason to lie, and that since he's longtime Soviet leader, like, uh, he, he had uh, credibility, and that they took their word, his word for it about everything, and, like, it's only now that we know more of the facts about, from the archives, about that many of his claims were exaggerated, and so he, he after can be excused on that count. Yeah, that is true. But you also have to know that in 1939, Herbert Aptheker was pretty young. He was 24 years old. So though he had, um, he, you know, he was learning a lot under that period, his uh, political maturity came under Khrushchev. So that's, I think, what Angelo meant to say. Not so okay. much that he came into the party at that time, that he reached okay. his political maturity at that point. Okay. Does that make sense? I guess so. Great. Thank you, comrades. Yes, comrades. So, um, you know, when um, uh, we talk about the grievances of people in Hungary in 1956, I want to compare to what happened in 1921 in uh, Soviet Russia at the Kronstadt Rebellion. Okay, so the Kronstadt Rebellion were sailors. Sailors meaning they were peasants, okay? And uh, they reflected the discontent of the peasantry at the time. They were all pissed off about uh, requisitions, you know, during the war communism. And uh, of course they did rebel and they did all of this saying uh, Soviets, yes, but no Bolsheviks, okay? It was repressed, but right after this, Lenin began the new economic policy, which is NAP, and what he did to make peasantry happy is no more acquisitions of crops, instead just a tax based on their production, a tax in kind, okay, and that was the beginning of the NEP, okay, and he saved the revolution that time two ways. He crushed the rebellion by force, and then he changed the economic policies. Okay, that's all, comrade. Thank you, comrade. I think uh, the only politicians and uh, academics who did not support the speedy industrialization of the Soviet Union are mostly the imperialist countries, and particularly the United States and the United Kingdom. I think they were not really, they didn't like the industrialization of the Soviet Union, because uh, when Lenin waged the revolution, the country was uh, like in a semi-feudal state. They didn't have uh, a large proletariat. They didn't have uh, 
uh, a, a successful industrialization. So under Lenin and Stalin in particular, the country was with heavy industrialization. So I don't think any industrialization contradicts the local uh, proletarian interest of a nation or the globalization of proletarian revolution throughout the world. So I think in that regard, any American politician, especially in our organization, who opposes the industrialization of the Soviet Union, I think is reactionary. That's how I say it. Because the proletariat is created in industrialization, not in farming. So if the most of most of African countries, Asia and Latin America are industrialized, actually that is strengthening the dictatorship of the proletariat on a global scale. It's not weakening it. So only people who oppose it like uh, global peace, uh, green peace, stuff like that, as long as industrialization is regulated and uh, synchronized with a healthy environment, I think industrialization by itself is not an enemy of the corporations in the West right now. They don't like it. Uh, that's, that's why they are opposing the BRICS uh, countries in Africa. They don't want Africa to be industrialized. Because if Africa is industrialized, it's going to use the raw materials in Africa and not being uh, not allowed to be exploited by corporations in Europe and North America. So I think people who oppose industrialization, be it in the Soviet Union and uh, now in different parts of the world, are, are not leftists. They are not true leftists or they are not true communists. Thank you, comrade. All right. If there is no other hands, we will return to the presentation. All of the excerpts are from The Truth About Hungary by Herbert Aptiker. The Hungarian Counter-Revolution. Hungarian students inspired by Polish counter-revolution attempt. University students of Budapest decided on a demonstration in solidarity with the Poles. The assembly point was to be the Writers' Union headquarters, the time 2.30 p.m. The indecision in the party leadership reflected itself to the last moment, for shortly after noon, the radio announced that the Ministry of Interior had forbidden the demonstration, but two hours later, it rescinded the ban. Students and other youth assembled at the appointed place and time, carrying placards. The sentiments dominating the banners were solidarity with the Polish youth and for friendly relations with the Soviet Union on an equal basis. At about 3 p.m., the demonstrators marched to the statue of the great Hungarian patriot and poet, Sandar Petofi. From thence, they moved on to the statue of General Byrne, a Polish hero who assisted Hungarian revolutionary efforts a century before. By this time, the marchers numbered perhaps 50,000. Towards the end of the afternoon, the Budapest Broadcasting Station announced the text of the result of talks held in Belgrade between leaders of the Hungarian and Yugoslav parties, already referred to, and it was announced that in the near future, leaders of Yugoslavia were to visit Budapest. Uh, new slide. He concluded his address with a slogan, with party unity for socialist democracy. That was splendid and correct. 
But Budapest, who had heard their effort denounced as a demonstration of nationalistic character, it left them sharply dissatisfied and disquieted, particularly since the characterization was more in keeping with the previous role of the speaker than was his promise. By now nearing 9 p.m., uglier sentiments began to appear from knots among the demonstrators, sentiments justifying Hero's characterization for small minorities certainly present from the beginning. Evidence of disciplined preconceived schemes of provocation and disorder begin to appear. Anti-Semitic remarks, false rumors of shooting, the bursting of firecrackers. Soon contingents broke away from the main body and very sure and very clear as to what they were doing and where they were going and who was to do what. One group headed for the broadcasting station, another for the building housing the newspaper Zabad Nep, a third for the telephone center, a fourth for a motor park. And this was the toppling of the statue of Joseph Stalin, October 23, 1956, uh, new site. At the radio station were some police and guards, but they had firm orders not to shoot except in self-defense. They were attacked. The group killed several and wounded more. The firing then was returned, and after a skirmish and some damage, the attack on the station broke off. At the newspaper office, after killing a woman, the group gained control, smashed a bookstore in the building and burned the books, tore down and burned a red flag that topped the building and held the presses for about 16 hours, can't tell there. Meanwhile, the trucks had been driven off, drivers clearly prepared and selected beforehand, and arms and munitions were loaded into them from the factory and the dump. Involved in all these more or less simultaneous and swift actions were perhaps something under a thousand people. Meanwhile, many demonstrators had returned home suspecting nothing, and even the government seems to have been informed tardily, and not very urgently, of the apparently disconnected sporadic assaults by a mere handful of people. An emergency session of the Politburo was convened about 10.30 in the evening of October 23, and it confirmed Giro as first secretary but made a momentous decision in offering the premiership once again to Imri Nagy. And he's, uh, the picture is protesters destroying a Budapest bookstore and, of course, Marxist-Leninist literature. Okay, new slide. What fighting there was on October 24th was conducted in very large part by units of the Hungarian army itself. And by the end of that day, it appeared that the back of the organized armed assault had been broken. There still persisted some coherence and unity in the party and in the organs of state power. In the morning of October 25th, the Central Committee of the party announced that Giro had been dismissed as first secretary and that the post had been accepted by Janos Kadar. But later that morning, there were renewed assaults upon army and police units and organized assassination attempts upon, upon communist leaders. This was still largely sporadic and did not yet involve 
large-scale participation. The disciplined nature of the attacking groups was manifest. It was also observed that members were well-armed with infantry weapons and that many wore. That same afternoon, thousands of Hungarians set out for the square before the parliament building. The essential purpose seems to have been to support the pleas for peace, which we have shown were coming now from all sides where responsibility and goodwill still existed, from a Roman Catholic archbishop through the first secretary of the party. Many of the demonstrators rode to the square atop Soviet tanks, and there was the warmest fraternity between the Hungarian masses and the Red Army troops. And this is the same picture we saw um, before, and it still looks like it's the same flag. Okay, demonstrators joined in fraternity, all right. Yeah, October 26. But meanwhile, outside Budapest, and especially in the West, where the border with Austria had been thrown open since last July, and where, as we shall show later, all sorts of strange people were entering by the thousands. Fighting continued against Hungarian police and army units. The Red Army took no part in these battles and skirmishes, having been ordered apparently to participate only in governmental defensive measures inside Budapest. By the end of October 26, insurgents had gained control of the Austro-Hungarian border and of dozens of country seats in the western part of the country. Uh, next slide. On October 30th, Emery Nagy issued a proclamation terminating the one-party system and announcing the return of the government to the coalition plan that had existed in 1945. For this purpose, an inner cabinet within the national government was established. It consisted of six people, three of whom were communists, Dimitri Nagy, Janos Kadar, uh, Geza Losanzi, and three non-communists, Bela Kovacs and Zoltan Tildy, smallholders and Erdi, peasant. At the same time, it was announced that a seventh person would be added as soon as possible from the Social Democratic Party. This was Anna Kefli, added to the ruling inner cabinet the next day. Thus, by October 31st, the decisive governmental powers were not in the hands of communists, but rather in a coalition whose majority consisted of a leading right-wing socialist and three non-socialists. Next slide. On the afternoon of October 30th, Zoltan Tildy, now a member of the inner cabinet, offered his opinion that Cardinal Ermincenti should be allowed to return to his seat in Estegam and by taking up his activities as primate of Hungary, take part in the noble fight which counts on every true patriot in these historic times. Mincenti, who had been released from prison in the summer of 1955 and was living under a kind of house arrest in the former estate of a prince, 
was actually freed from this detention on the evening of October 30th. The act was accomplished by a Hungarian major, the son of a count who had been a leader in the 1919 White Terror and a prominent figure under Horthy with several tanks. That same night, the Cardinal entered Budapest. Meanwhile, still on October 30th, the Eisenhower government offered the new Hungarian government a grant and aid of 20 million. But this did not become public knowledge until it appeared in a one-inch item on the back pages of the New York Times in January 9th, 1957. Presumably, however, this uh, negotiation was known to the Soviet government very much earlier than the next January. All right, next slide. Before dawn on October 31st, the National Air Defense Command demanded the immediate withdrawal of all Soviet forces from Hungary. Failing this, the Air Forces of the People's Army will take action in support of this demand. Other Hungarian sources simultaneously put this more bluntly, bomb the Soviet troops. Further, on October 31st, Premier Nagy announced, quite on his own authority, that the 1948 prosecution against Cardinal Mincenti lacked all legal basis. Hence, the Hungarian national government announces that the measures depriving Cardinal Prime Joseph Minzenti of his rights are invalid and therefore the Cardinal can exercise without any restrictions all civil and ecclesiastical rights. Next slide. Then on November 3rd, once again, the formation of a new government was announced. And again, it represented a further move to the right. In this government, the names of 12 persons were announced. Of these three were communists, Nagy, Kadar, and Lasansi, but the name of Kadar was included without his authorization and against his will. Now, in fact, of 11 members, only two were communists. Of the remaining nine, three were the smallholders party, three were of the social democrat, two were of the peasant, and one was independent. This, even in name, let alone in the realities of power at that moment, was a government considerably to the right that formed 11 years before. Next slide. The Euro US and Europe plan for Cardinal Mincenti to take over Hungary. George N. Schuster, the official apologist for the Cardinal, wrote a series of articles for the New York Herald Tribune, October 29, 30, 31 in 1956, based according to the paper upon direct information from that country, Hungary, within the last few days. Mr. Schuster declared there can be no doubt that the key to the solution of the nation's problems is in Cardinal Mincenti's hands. Further, wrote Mr. Schuster, when the revolt started, another effort was made to convince the Cardinal that he should go before the microphone calm the people and tell them to put down their arms. Obviously, the appeal was made without success. Yes, that is obvious, and it has, I think, but one explanation. The Cardinal wanted the violence to continue because he wanted the drift to the right to gather momentum. 
Just a remark that in the highest circles within the insurgent movement was Bela Kovacs, formerly Secretary General of the Peasant Union, and once jailed for counter-revolutionary activity, activities even before, uh, let's see, even before Mincenti was released sometime before the October uprising. Kovacs, wrote Schuster on October 31st, was a faithful and ardent supporter of Cardinal Mincenti. Kovacs was third in the chain of command behind Nagy and Tildy in the 11th person government announced by Nagy on November 3rd. Schuster also wrote, the revolt has shown that Vincente was and is a sole moral force in the country, whether he is in office or not. The drive of this national upheaval draws strength from him. According to Schuster, the Vincente Kovacs leadership has one aim, install in Hungary a genuine Christian democratic regime in which Mincenti will not participate actively since he is not a politician, but which he would support as the greatest force for justice and moderation. This is what he did in the past. On November 2nd, Populaire, organ of the French Socialist Party, noted, Cardinal Mincenti frequently speaks over the radio. It seems the Cardinal intends to play a leading role in political life. The impression is that nothing is done without him. The danger in Hungary is the revival of Orpheism after liberation from the Soviet yoke. In a leading Paris newspaper, Aurore, or Aurore, on November 3rd, it was reported, Cardinal Mincenti is ready to participate in a government that will reestablish order in Budapest. The editor declares that he has interviewed the Cardinal, who is anxious to use a Christian Democratic Party emerge as a potent force. The Cardinal, asked if he would accept a leading post in the future government, responded, it is possible. Yet, the editor added it was not likely the Cardinal would take the leading office in such a government. This position would revert to a political man to whom the prelate would expect to give, as Minister of State, his moral support. Writers at the time announced from Budapest that the Cardinal, interviewed by Prince Hubertus Lowenstein had declared that a united and rearmed Germany, ready to repulse the Soviet danger by all means, was the hope of Hungary and of all Europe. Next slide. It's a broadcast. A Magyar Szabadságharcos Rádió utolsó felhívását intézi a szabad világhoz. Világ népei, az ezer éves Magyarország őrtornyain kezdenek kihúnyni az utolsó lángok. A szovjet hadsereg megpróbál szétzúzni bennünket. Páncélosaik és ágyúik Magyarországon dübörögnek át. Asszonyaink, anyáink, leányaink veszélyben vannak. Mentsétek meg lelkeinket! SOS! SOS! Lehet, hogy most szólal meg utoljára az utolsó szabad magyar rádió. Világ népei, hallgassatok meg, segítsetek, ne tanáccsal, ne szavakkal, hanem tettel. Ne felejtjétek, hogy a szovjet barbár támadását nem lehet feltartóztatni. A következő áldozatok ti lettek. segítsetek, SOS. Világ népei, 
az igazság és szabadság nevében segítsetek! A hajó süllyed, a lángok kihunnak, óráról órára sötétebbek lesznek az árnyak Magyarország felett. Halljátok meg kiáltásunkat! Nyújtsatok testvéri kezet! Mentsetek meg! Segítség! Segítség! S.O.S. Isten veletek és velünk! Thank you, comrade. We will now break for a discussion again. Yeah, so I included that last video because um, you you heard what they were saying. So first of all, this uh, radio station, it was the Hungarian subsidiary of, uh, of um, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, the CIA mouthpiece. Um, uh, so... In it, they were saying we, if the Soviets, uh, if the Soviet Union wins, that will uh, our one thousand years of freedom will end. One thousand years was what they had before. That was their feudal, their feudalist society where there was no democracy, there was no freedom. The church owned most of the land, so. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, I just pointed it out to, or I, I brought it up to uh, point out how uh, contradictory it was. No, fantastic. Thank you. I was, as soon as I saw Hungarian Free Radio, I was like, oh, where's Radio Free Europe? Yes, comrade, a couple of things. Okay, first of all, um, you remember the name of uh, Yuri Andropov, right? He was the... Um, uh, leader of the USSR right after Brezhnev, right? Of the party, I mean, right after Brezhnev. And, you know, during the time of uh, the uprising there in Budapest, he was the ambassador of the USSR. And he's the one that convinced Khrushchev to send the T-34s, okay? And uh, Yuri Andropov, he, you know, he was, he, he was good. He was really good. Uh, sadly, he only... Uh, lived a year and a half, you know. And after that, there was Chernyanko, which was also, and then, you know who, Gorbachev. And second thing important, during this time, it was the very time of the second Israeli-Arab War of 56, when the Zionist state invaded Egypt in the Sinai, and right after them, together, actually, they were all in cohort, you know, uh, the UK and France invaded 
Egypt. Okay, it was the very same time, day by day, like it was uh, October 29th. when, when they, Okay, so that that's uh, when the rare occasions in history when things go crazy in different parts of the world, right? And yet they're re related, of course. That's all. Thank you, Comrade. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on, um, it's funny listening to them. I mean, we hear the same exact things now in 2023. Like they had the spokesperson for the foreign ministry of Ukraine was coming out and saying that like Russians were subhumans. And even in that video, they say these barbarians are coming to come into our lands. But what's even more funny about it is that they, you know, on the one hand, United States and Western propaganda like to paint the Soviet Union as poor and backwards. But then on the other hand, we have these fascists that are asking for aid in order to defeat them. So what is it? Are they poor and incompetent or are they really strong and going to destroy everything? You know, it just goes to show how stupid the capitalists think that everyone is. You know, I just wanted to bring that up. Thank you. Yes, comrade. So during these events, the ambassador of the USSR in Hungary was Yuri Andropov. And from the windows of the embassy, he saw the fascists hanging communists from lampposts. And uh, then he convinced Khrushchev to send the T-34. Okay. Later on, Yuri Andropov became the boss of the KGB. And later on again, he became the leader, I mean, the general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union when Brezhnev died. And Andropov was one of the best before Gorbachev, you know. Okay, and one more thing, the context of these events, there is something very important. At the same time, this happened, you know, in October 56, guess what? There was a second Arab-Israeli war. At the same days, uh, Israel invaded the Gaza Strip and invaded the Sinai of Egypt. At that time. And right after them, the British and French sent their troops against Egypt. Okay. So this is all happening at the same time. Does it remind you kind of of what's happening in Ukraine now and Israel and Palestine? You know, that's interesting. That's all. All right. Thank you for that, comrade. If there are no other hands for the moment, we will return to the presentation. Okay. Next slide. All right. We're going to be drawing parallels uh, to now and the Euro Maiden. It's uh, okay. So we're going to be talking about uh, what uh, is known as the color revolutions. You know, what has been known in the 21st century as color revolutions. It's fair to say that the 56 uh, Hungarian counter revolutions was an example of what is known today as a color revolution. The term color revolution was coined in the early 21st century to designate at first popular movements, but which later were directed at establishing in Eastern Europe regimes 
favorable to Western so-called liberal democracies. In 2000, it was a bulldozer revolution in Yugoslavia. In 03, the Rose Revolution in Georgia. In 04, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. In 05, the Tulip Revolution in Kyrgyzstan. These so-called revolutions did not actually overthrow socialist governments, but mostly capitalist ones. But governments who carried a mortal sin, namely to be not friendly enough to Western imperialism. The method is always the same. Support popular and workers' grievances through the intense use of internet and foreign NGOs and bring to power Western puppets. Next slide. One could say the first color revolutions were the many anti-communist uprisings of the 20th century. It began in March 1921 at Kronstadt, outside of Petrograd, when sailors rebelled against the Soviet Republic. They reflected the discontent of peasants' masses after four years of war communism at the end of the Civil War. Their slogan was, Soviets, yes, but without the Bolsheviks. They were fully supported by French, British, and Russian capitalists, including the white czarists. You can see the Kronstadt sailors there. Next. 32 years later, in June 53, shortly after Stalin died, a similar revolt happened in East Berlin. The economic situation was difficult in the young German Democratic Republic that was founded four years earlier. Unlike in West Germany, flooded with US dollars of the Marshall Plan, the USSR couldn't afford much help to the GDR. Workers began a strike, and soon there were widespread demonstrations throughout the country. Thanks to Soviet T-34s, socialist order was quickly restored. The radio in the American sector of West Berlin had been blasting the news of the first workers going on strike in order to fan the flames of anti-communism in East Germany. The events of October 56 in Hungary followed the familiar playbook. We just talked about that one. The next one. Okay, the infamous Prague Spring. So 12 years later was the turn of Czechoslovakia during the infamous Prague Spring. This time, the slogan was socialism with a human face. These 20th century color revolutions, in these uh, color revolutions, it was never openly proclaimed to abolish socialism, but always to improve it. You know, to get rid of one's dog, one will accuse it of having rabies. The goal of the Prague Spring was in fact to end people's democracy and get Czechoslovakia out of the Warsaw Pact and straight into NATO's arms. Again, Soviet tanks came to the rescue in August 68 and socialism was saved for the time being. 
from the early spring through the summer of 68. The Prague Spring was all over the newspapers, front pages and TV screens of the so-called free world. You can see Prague in 68 with a T-34 there. Next. Once again, there was a 12-year gap until the next color revolution. This time, it was in Poland in 1980 with a solidarity movement. They call it Solidarność. In 78, a new Catholic pope had been elected in Rome, John Paul II, born in Poland, a rabid anti-communist. This was a loss on the CIA, who saw a good opportunity. In August 1980, a trade union was founded at the Lenin shipyard in Gdansk. That uh, Gdansk is used to be Danzig during World War II. Its name was Solidarity. Its leader, Lech Walesa, also a rabid anti-communist. Solidarity had the CIA's and the Vatican's fingerprints all over. Lech Walesa quickly became the poster child of the so-called free world. In 81, Solidarity reached a membership of an incredible 10 million. In 83, Valesa receives a Nobel Peace Prize. By the way, that's the same prize that uh, was awarded to Obama in 09, the US president who ordered the most drone strikes. And one said, turns out I'm really good at killing people. Solidarity was instrumental in overthrowing socialism. And Valesa became capitalist Poland's first president from 90 to 95. Next. The People's Republic of China wasn't spared either by color revolutions. In June 89, the Tiananmen Square protests were an attempt to overthrow the Communist Party of China. It must be noted that the so-called democracy protesters were marching at the sound of the Internationale once again, they never openly rejected socialism, but pretended to improve it. The CIA and Western ideologues are expert dialecticians, and they are master wolves who know how to invite the sheep to the dinner table. In 2019-2020, the West pulled the water revolution in Hong Kong. Protests were broadcasted 24-7 in Western media, and protesters didn't even hesitate to march with U.S. and U.K. flags. Of course, the most infamous color revolution of late was the 2014 Euromaidan that overthrew a bourgeois government in Kiev, whose mortal sin was to be too friendly with Russia and not friendly enough with EU and NATO. The American queen of neocons, you know her, her name is Victoria Nuland. She was Obama's special envoy to Ukraine in 2014. And she actually handpicked herself, the new Kiev government at the time. So later on, she publicly admitted that the United States had spent $5 billion 
to bring freedom and democracy to Ukraine. Just like all color revolutions from Kronstadt to Budapest, Euromaidan began with somewhat of a legitimate popular discontent, but was quickly funneled by the West into installing a lapdog puppet regime, this time openly fascist. Thank you, comrade. We will now go to our final discussion panel and then later the wrap-up. Comrade. Okay, I just wanted to make a note about Tiananmen Square. Uh, one of the things that the uh, there's a, a country that was relatively poor uh, throughout, and a lot of these protesters were walking around with uh, two thousand dollar camcorders, uh, uh, camcording everything. So it's amazing. Where did where the hell did they get that uh, those expensive cameras from? That's why I make that note of that. Mm, we're indeed. Yeah, to add on to uh, Tiananmen Square, I actually have footage of what happened to the soldiers who went in originally were unarmed and were there just for peacekeeping. And the student protesters uh, dragged them out of the vehicles, beat them to death, stripped them naked, hung them from lampposts, and then lit their bodies on fire. So there's actual footage of that which happened. In fact, my father, I'm ashamed to say, was actually one of the student protesters, but he left once things started to get rowdy. Um, and uh, I can actually share that with the PSMLS if we ever have a class on Tiananmen Square. I keep uploading to YouTube and they keep deleting that video. They keep taking it down. Um, so, which, you know, you can understand why the next day the soldiers came in armed. Um, but these protesters the student protesters were funded by the u.s government they encouraged to be violent and then while their fellow students were committing these acts of violence they were already on the plane to the u.s and these people are you know today happily living in the u.s no problem at all you know perfectly successful um and they've even admitted just on you know public tv stations Hey, yeah, we were funded by the U.S. and we were encouraged to be violent and commit acts of terrorism. Um, 90 seconds. And, you know, they just admit that. So th they don't hide it. They don't, or at least they don't hide it for very long. The truth always comes out. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. Uh, it's kind of interesting to hear that John, Pope John Paul II had a role in the Solidarity Movement. Because I remember when he died... It was actually around 2004, 2005, maybe, to maybe even 2006. And every capitalist media outlet press was talking about his death. You couldn't get away from it for like a month at least. Uh, but that being said, I'm curious to know, does anybody know about the contradiction between the Russian Orthodox Church and the Vatican? Because I know that the, um, the Russian Archbishop uh, he is supportive of the special military operation in Ukraine. And I'm just curious to know, does anybody know between the Roman Catholics and like the Russian Orthodox Church, what the differences are? All right. Uh, so why is it that Solidarity had a membership of almost 10 million? Because Poland is a country of like back then 40 million, 30 million, something like that. And it's said what uh, membership around 10 million. So what, what changed in Polish society that made so many people join uh solidarity uh if anyone's got an answer to that go ahead 
Uh, yeah, so I would say, honestly, I'm not too uh, well-versed with Solidarity, but it is like has a lot of books on it, which is like first-hand accounts on that. So I would say check with him. Um, but can I make my comment now then? Yep, go ahead. Okay, uh, so one thing that I always laughed about was, you know, during the height of the BLM protest uh, in the United States, we had a lot of people, you know, in, in Congress and the House of Representatives coming out and saying things like, you know, we should basically just shoot these protesters. It's violent. It's terrible. This is not how you, like, argue for things. But then those very same people, like a notable example is Matt Gates, Marco Rubio. They were cheering on the Hong Kong protesters. Like, oh, yeah, it's good to use violence against an oppressive state. Um, and these Hong Kong protesters were literally like beating up elderly people, lighting people on fire, doing all this crazy stuff. And we had lawmakers here in the United States cheering them on. You know, it's just utter hypocrisy. That's all. OK, and we will close out tonight with the international anthem of the Hungarian Soviet Republic. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit.